listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Helen Joyce has been a staff journalist at The Economist since 2005. She's currently the Britain editor. Previous jobs include finance editor and Brazil correspondent based in Sao Paulo. Before joining The Economist, she edited Plus, an online magazine about mathematics published by the University of Cambridge. And she was founding editor of the Royal Statistical Society's magazine, Significance. She has a PhD in mathematics from University College London. Helen joins us today to discuss her recent book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. We have a fascinating conversation, not about trans people per se, but about gender identity ideology. Here's our conversation with Helen. So Helen Joyce, today is a really big day for you, actually. We feel very lucky that you are on our program. Can you tell us a little bit about the significance of September 7th here as we record? Well, Sasha, I'm not the world's most organized person, and I can't say that this was on purpose. This was where (laughs) our interview landed. And then afterwards, I realized I'm out in the US today and Canada today. And guess what? New York Times Review, which I had no idea was coming. So that was the most exciting thing that happened for me today. Wow. I can't believe you didn't know about the New York Times Review. Oh, no, they're really secretive, and rightly so. They don't want people lobbying the reviewers. Yeah, So obviously the publicists in the US sent out copies to people, but basically they were getting people saying not interested, not interested. And they did mention to me that a couple of people had said, oh, all right, send me a review copy. But I work in a newspaper. I know that most of those don't turn into reviews. And I would never have thought the New York Times would review it. And then there's a review by Jesse Singel, who's a guy I hugely admire and respect. And of course, you know, he's been unable to say a word to me for months because he's known he's reviewing my book and they don't wow. allow contacts. And I've been wondering why the occasional email I send him was <laughs> going nowhere. <laughs> That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about, uh, I don't even know where we should start. Do we want to start today with the review or would you like to go back and talk about the, the writing of your book or what inspired it? I mean, what do you think? As long as we leave time for you guys to say what you got from it, because I want to hear that too. And I think that's, for me, um, extremely important. I mean, Sasha is in the book for a start. You know what? I don't have a copy of the book. Mine is in the mail, so it's on its way. It got shipped by Amazon yesterday. But I haven't read the book, believe it or not. Well, Sasha, I said some really awful things about you. No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I've read the book. I've read the book. I have it here. Well-toned copy. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely game changer without a doubt you know so one of the things people keep asking is did I know it was going to be a big success and really it's the last thing I could possibly have thought so when I thought I was going to write it I thought I wasn't going to find a publisher and in fact it was very difficult and my first agent dropped me and all the publishers I approached said no in various ways and then um, Caroline Hardman who was already Kathleen Stock's agent 
Kathleen said, reach out to her. And normally somebody like who's that close to another author would say no, because it's too close. It's a conflict of interest when it comes to selling rights and things. But Kathleen really urged Caroline to say yes, which I think was incredibly kind and lovely of Kathleen, who is a lovely and kind person. And so Caroline did find me a publisher, One World, who were a small independent, not very small, but like, you know, an independent press here in the UK, very respected. And the editor there, Cecilia, for me, has been a complete find. I was so lucky. I said to her afterwards, I gave it 50-50 that she would actually publish the book. And she said, oh, no, why did you say that? When did I ever give you the impression I was going to drop you? And she didn't. It was just the environment, you know. I looked around, all these books being pulped and so on. But she was fantastic. She was great with guidance on tone and structure. And so, um, you know, it got through, it got published. And then to my great surprise, it got some really great reviews um, in the Times here, the Sunday Times quite recently. Um, And not not so amazing review in The Observer, but fantastic. They reviewed it. And then some smaller outlets. And the thing is, these things snowball. You start to get asked on podcasts and you start to be asked on other podcasts. And the thing for me now about the New York Times reviewing it is it kind of respectabilizes it. <laughs> you know, you're, you're entitled to review a book if the New York Times has reviewed it, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. I reviewed it in the Evening Standard. You did. Little, you were the very yeah. first publisher. I think actually, I was. Stella. Because when you review a book, you, you kind of want other reviews to have been out. <laughs> Just in case you miss something massive and then everybody else is talking about it and you haven't. But I knew my subject with this. I was like, I know, I can review it. Give me this. Let me add it because mm-hmm. I really knew. Wow. It's just such an exciting moment that this book got out. And it's not only for me, for me watching the the, the arc of it, is how big it's been. Do you know what I mean? How much it's really cut through. That's for me the most exciting, no doubt for you too, Helen, but that's the real shock and delight. I mean, it's weird for me in lots of ways, and it's really important to emphasise that this is just one, like, like if you think of it as trying to shatter a glass, you know, wall that we were all trying to shout from one side of, that many, many people have been hammering on that wall, and I was just lucky to be holding a hammer at a moment when a big crack appeared, like hundreds of people were doing it first. And the second thing I think it's really important to emphasise is I'm not a player in this, I'm a journalist. So journalists swoop in and write stuff and then bugger off and let other people do the hard work. So I don't want to set myself up as being some preeminent leader, campaignery sort of character. I'm none of those things. I'm just someone who noticed a news story and decided I couldn't let it go. So that's what journalism is meant to be. And if other journalists who had been have been doing their job, then we wouldn't have this issue. Jesse Singal obviously being a notable exception. Isn't it amazing how there's something about gender that grabs people and just consumes us? It's there's something incredibly, incredibly compelling about the subject. You can see it the same with Abigail Schreier. She's a journalist who just the very same thing, just and mm-hmm. is completely absorbed. As am I. I'm not a journalist, but there's something so absorbing about it. I think it's because it's bleeding into everything about society. Because I think it's, it's because it's speech and politics yeah. and things. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It, it ripples out because it's part. Well, partly because it's an assault on reality. So when you detach language from reality, all sorts of strange things happen, including things that weren't intended. Like I just don't think that anybody 20 years ago intended that seriously there will be male people competing in the Olympics as women. 
I mean, if mm-hmm. they did, they were the you know the few a few dozen mm-hmm. people who were campaigners around the world in tiny little transgender lobby groups. But that's where we got because we detached the word and the reality. So I think that's one reason. But more fundamentally, I don't think it's exactly gender that people are fascinated with. It is sex. And this isn't really gender self-ID. If it was, I wouldn't care because I don't care what gender people call themselves. It's sex self-ID. It's males saying they're females. And there's nothing more fundamental about us than our species and our sex. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're talking about something that's very deep-rooted. And as soon as people realise that's what you mean, that you aren't just talking about your really great podcast on non-binary, which I must listen to again. I loved it. You're talking about a new category of people, and that's fine. That's like saying, you know, people who are environmentalists. That didn't mean anything a while ago, and now it means a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. So you could think of non-binary like that, and if that's all people meant, I'd be completely fine with it. Right. It's not that. They're trying to redefine everybody, including me, including you, and and, and about something that's fundamental to us. And that gets people quite enraged and involved. Yes. In Jesse Singles' review, he he has this one line where he reviewed your book and he says, according to self-ID, once an individual reveals their gender identity, that trumps anyone else's understanding of it. If you say you are a man or a woman or both or neither, that's exactly what you are. And I think one thing that I've heard you talk about, and I can't wait to read this more in your book, is you you do a really good job of picking through dis- distinctions between transsexualism, which is a term that seems to be anachronistic, though it's valuable, and gender self-ID. Can you just talk a little bit about what did you learn in your research? Why are these two things different? And obviously, this is the point of your book. Why is it dangerous to lean on a self-ID perspective. So this is something that really my editor helped with a lot. I went into the book in a very different place than the book that you will have in your hands shortly, Sasha. Like I went in with the story of a detransitioner, which she said rightly was too much for people who didn't already know about the subject, because they'll frame it in their mind as being somebody who is this this special natural category of person called trans. And you and I and Stella know that this isn't a well-defined category. It's many different things. But that's not what people think before they come into this subject. But this is one of, say, one or two percent of people for whom transition didn't work out. And you don't expect anything to work out for everybody. So to me, it was meant to be somebody who encapsulated the problems with gender self-ID for all of three groups. And they are women, children and gay people, because this was a young lesbian And I did use her story later on in the book, and I still think that those are the three groups that gender self-ID causes the biggest problems for. But in arguing with her, thinking that she was wrong and sulking and having her tell me why she was right, she said to me, but why aren't you comparing trans people and de-trans people or people for whom transition was a success and people for whom transition was a failure? And I said to her, because it's not about trans people. It's about an idea. Uh And she said, go in there. So the first sentence of the book now is, this is a book about an idea, one that seems simple, but has far-reaching consequences. And that idea is that everybody is what they say they are. If you say you're a man or a woman or a girl or a boy or something else, that is what you say you are. And if you're not thinking hard and you just imagine one of these very exceptional people who are truly unusual and who you can actually see when you look at them, why they think they're members of the opposite sex. Like in a way, yes, it's sexist. And yes, it's, 
you know, reifying gender roles or whatever, but you can still see why they think it. And you just think, oh, well, all right. There's a few very exceptional people who are very different from the norm. And if we reclassified those, the whole of society wouldn't break down. And you don't realise they're making a truth claim about all of humanity. And the thing is, they are. And it takes a long time, even for some trans allies. Like I know people who regarded themselves as trans allies, many of them, in fact, uh, who belatedly realised what this meant for things like same-sex attraction or, you know, teaching children about what it's okay for boys and girls to do. I remember one line in the in this, which is kind of similar to what you're on saying, one line in the book was something like, this is not a book about trans people, this is a book, then dot dot, this is a book about ideology. And that's where I think that's the kind of sit up and listen moment, because people think you're talking about trans people, and you're actually talking about ideology. And two different two different kind of roads are going on because well, trans activism, people, right? About yes, activism. so I say exactly mm. that. This is not a book about trans people. And yeah. I explain, like the analogy I use, and I think it's an important analogy, is that um, trans activism as understood, and this is not something that loads of trans people agree with. Loads and loads of people disagree yeah. with it because it doesn't fit their yeah, own experience at enough. all. And they see the issues for everyone else. But so that the you know the modern ascendant version of transactivism is like a religion in the sense that it is a metaphysical, unevidenced belief that is not in any way related to the facts around you, and people are totally entitled to hold those sorts of beliefs. But in a modern pluralistic society, they aren't entitled to make other people say they believe them, act as if they believe them, refrain from criticizing them, uh, stop them from believing other things that contradict them. And that is what all of the activists are trying to do. They're trying to remake our language, our shared social reality, and indeed our physical reality in line with their unevidenced beliefs. And what I say in the book is that if you were trying to evaluate the truth of a religion, not whether someone should be allowed to believe it, just whether it's actually true, it would be irrelevant whether it made its believers happy Mm. or unhappy. Oh, yeah, very good. Completely. So that's why there's no point in saying whether transition makes people happy. It may well. I'm not interested in that. I know this sounds bizarre, but I'm not actually interested in trans people any more than other people. I'm interested in everybody, but I'm not specifically interested in trans people. I'm not interested in stories of transition. I'm actually interested in ideas and public policy. Yeah. So I don't mind if people believe this strange thing. Most people do not share the same beliefs as I do. You know, I have a set of beliefs that include feminism, atheism, a slightly complicated environmentalism. I'm fiscally relatively conservative. You're down to a tiny proportion of all of humanity with this combination Mm, of beliefs. mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it is fine with me that other people don't share those beliefs. But they aren't allowed to go pressing in on me and taking away my rights Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary uh, in a school in Ireland, well, not in a school, in all the secondary schools in Ireland this week, they released a pack, a pledge, a pledge. That's what all the students were being recommended to do. Did you miss this, Sasha, by your face? It looks like you missed I, it. I saw a title somewhere, but I don't know the specific pledge. And I can't, I can't emphasize the word pledge has such religious undertones, mm-hmm. overtones and every tone in Ireland. Like it is the word because everybody takes the pledge when they're 12 in the confirmation to give up alcohol and they have done for many, many generations. And we got rid of it in the last generation or so. And suddenly this pledge pack where students were going to be asked to pledge 
to normalise pronouns. And it was like, is my head falling off? Am I actually seeing, like, thumbs up, happy, chappy students saying, we've got the pledge packs and we're rolling them out to all the secondary schools. And that was just a couple of days ago. And yet people don't see pledge beliefs that this is just an idea. It's an idea that some people hold. And it's a very religious style idea, too, which is one of the reasons it's so odd that people don't see it. And again, I'm not talking about trans people who tend to be more reality based, in fact, than your average activist. So there was a protest here in the UK where I'm based uh, in London outside Westminster a few weeks ago. And the video was so bizarre. You know, it was these people doing a call and response, like a liturgy, going, you know, trans women are women, trans women oh, no. are women, trans men, you know. And then you get to non-binary and you always wonder what they're going to do for non-binary. You know. non-binary Is it going to be valid or just valid. repeat non-binary? <laughs> but it is honestly like, you know, Lord hear us, Lord graciously hear us. Mm. I, I The more I do this work, the more I think if this was described as a belief system it would be okay because at least we could hold it in in that kind of understanding that some people simply hold these beliefs that there's no such thing as biological sex that everyone has an internal identity but it's being held as just a fact we've recently discovered thank goodness that we just didn't know for the entire history of human time and And that's what makes it so odd and a very fast changing fact as well like the fact that we're all meant to have somehow been blind to but that was there literally since the beginning of humanity yeah is a completely different set of facts than it was in 2015 or even 2018 so and you're not meant to know that i reread 1984 and when i was choosing my epigraphs for the book one of them is from 1984 and the other is a quote from audrey lord about courage And the 1984 one was the one that freedom is the freedom to say that two and two make four. Once that is granted, Mm. all else follows. Mm. And, you know, I know that book quite well. I've read it a few times and reading it again after discovering this ideology really gave me shivers. People are always citing 1984 and always saying that things are Orwellian, but this really is. Yeah. I hadn't realised to what an extent, I hadn't remembered to what an extent 1984 was based on constantly rewriting history. Yeah. Like that's what Winston is doing. He's constantly changing everything in all the records every time yeah. the current narrative changes and people yeah. who were in are now being written out. You know, Eurasia at war with Oceania and not at war with Oceania, allied with Oceania. Mm. And you have to rewrite everything. So, you know, if, if I look back at reviews from even 2010, 2011, 2015 of things that people who still are regarded as on the cutting edge of transactivism, of things that they said or did, they're using language that's now regarded as super transphobic. And that's in 1984, the newspeak, the double think, and the cutting the language so that you can't think it because you don't have the language to think it. Yeah, I quote that in the book, that the yeah. point of newspeak is to make it impossible to do wrong think. Yeah. yeah. And that's, so there's a, there's a very Orwellian bit in American law um, I, I go into detail in this in the book, Sa- uh, Sasha, you'll read it. But um, anyway, you know the sort of the broad details, the broad outlines, if not the fine details. So at various points, various states and also the federal government have put out circulars or draft laws or whatever that seek to define sex as meaning gender identity. 
And they don't just say that gender identity is part of sex. They say that the word sex in laws like Title VII and Title IX, which are the civil rights law that protect women's rights of various sorts, that those um, words actually just mean and always meant, that's the Orwellian bit, always meant gender gender identity. Mm -hmm. And then they have these bizarre sentences that say things like, um, when someone transitions, they assert the sex that corresponds to their gender identity instead of the sex that they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. And that's using the word sex in two different and incompatible ways in the same sentence. And so it's double think. You have to be able to hold both meanings at the same time in your mind. Yeah, yeah. I think think sometimes people particularly, I'm thinking about the context of school, right? And how many schools have adopted this kind of idea as part of their health ed curriculum or their science curriculum. And it's, it's pretty amazing when you really break it down. But I think some people are just so inundated with like bureaucratic changes to, well, we have to teach this now, we have to throw this clause in and that clause in, that unless you have taken the time to really slow down and examine the consequences of these ideas, it could definitely slip under the radar. And I mean, I I have always felt there was something odd about even the concept of gender dysphoria. And I know that's not what you're writing about here. But do you have any ideas about why so many people gloss over this and haven't taken, I think even if you examine these ideas for more than 10 minutes, you realize there's something inherently contradictory that doesn't work. And yet so many people have gone along with it. Do you think that's purely because of, you know, a fear of retaliation of some kind? Or or do you think there's something else about these ideas themselves that are so confusing that people just don't get it and just move on. I think we're all confused about a lot of things, really. We live in a very complex society and you're constantly being told things about, you know, government debt or interest rates or climate change or Brexit or, you know, what's happening in the South China Seas. Or you, I mean, you just can't keep up with more than a tiny fraction of it. And so it's inevitable that we outsource a lot of our our thinking and our moral decision making by deciding who we're aligned with. And I know that sounds like we're sheep. I just think it's inevitable. Like, you know that you trust this particular commentator. You felt they were very insightful and you agreed with a lot of the things they thought. So the next thing they say, you're really well disposed to it. So we do all of us take our ideas as packages. And I must say, I thought that gender self-ID was a great idea when I heard of it first, simply because it came from the same people who had supported things that I ardently support, like gay marriage. So when the same people who said that go on to say the next thing is gender self-ID and trans people are the next oppressed minority, of course you go for it. And superficially, you know, again, you think of the sort of person for whom it would make sense. You don't go straight to the logic of it. Even someone like me who has a PhD in mathematics doesn't, doesn't dive straight to thinking this is a circular definition. And I'd say another thing, too, which is that a lot of us feel very unconfident about our own judgments. I don't think it's natural for human beings to be wildly confident to stand out against their own tribe ever. Like we, we yeah. know Our decision-making and our meaning-making is very much part of our tribal group. 
Mm-hmm. By tribe, I mean, you know, whether we're Democrat or Republican, whether we're Catholic or atheist or whatever, all those things. But also just, you know, you tend to just think, oh, I've misunderstood something and move on. Yes. And then parents are so busy. Like parents are always busy. It's a busy time. But I think parents have become more busy. And certainly during the pandemic, that's true. So you get something home from school and it's just saying this is the next thing. And then the final factor that I would add is that we have fallen for a sort of a, a narrative arc of progress that the arc of history bends towards justice. Now, I hope that's true. And certainly in many ways, it has been true over the past couple of centuries. I don't think it's necessarily a given. And I also don't think we can tell right now what the right side of history is. History judges things in ways that we won't find it very easy to explain. But if you believe this march of history sort of approach, and I think most of us probably instinctively do at this point, Mm -hmm. you know, living standards going up, women being less oppressed, black people being less oppressed, gay people being less oppressed, next group comes along. You know, you're almost railroaded into thinking that this is the next thing, the next step. And that's the way it's sold. So I just think there's all these powerful forces converging to make you think without thinking. That, you know, all right thinking people think this. And then we live in bubbles as well, polarisation, especially in the US. So you don't get any challenge to your thoughts. Sometimes I've said things to young people um, in work or in journalism and more broadly and one said to me, trans women are women, no debate, which was the slogan a couple of years ago. They've given up the no debate uh, thing here. And I said to her, but hang on, there's a government consultation at the moment. That is a debate. I mean, there literally is a debate. And her mouth hung open and she mm. stared at me. And it's a very clever young woman. Mm-hmm. And she stared at me and she couldn't think of anything to say because she had literally never heard somebody say that before. I've seen some people say yes debate, hashtag yes debate, which I think is quite funny. But um, I do think there's another, maybe another reason I've often thought it. I know two therapists contacted me recently on Facebook and both of them hadn't, had kind of presumed I was very pro transitioning kids because they don't, I know, and how could they? But they, 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 they weren't reading my posts. They were scrolling by quickly. And I think we underestimate how little I never realized until I got into this world, how little people are reading. They're just kind oh, of looking Sasha, at the I, I, I still, I have to you. tell you a good story about that one. Um, some young people who know my family had found out that I was writing this book. And they had, of course, assumed that a good person, like a capital GP good person, was writing a book about rah-rah trans, rah-rah gender identity, rah-rah self-ID. And they thought this for ages. And it was becoming downright embarrassing. <laughs> and then one day, one of my family members met them. And they'd all just read, I think it was possibly the Quillette article I wrote that sort of was my moment of coming out as, you know, noted bigot Helen Joyce. And they were so astonished they couldn't believe it and they're such a lovely bunch of young people so they were like oh you know what does she not understand and one of them very sweetly said um do you think if I talked to her Uh, (laughs) so you know they just they just couldn't comprehend it but I wondered like with the with the therapist who thought who just presumed and they both kind of thought that seems a bit funny of Stella she's so pro-medicalizing kids it's they both thought oh that's she seems to have turned left in her, you know, as in she seems to have veered off. And they didn't, they were obviously not reading anything I was saying. <laughs> Clearly, they were just going by. But I wonder, is there some sort of, now this might sound mad, but is there some sort of transphobic kind of, 
I can't think about it. I want to say yes. I don't want to I don't want to even think about what's actually happening when somebody transitions. And so I'm just scrolling past so fast to say yes, 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 I agree with that. Yes, yes, yes. Cannot think, cannot compute, just say yes. That's how I feel some people are, are coming so, at. So this. two things that are strongly related to that that I think play into these um this sort of I'm not engaging. One is men who find the topic extremely uncomfortable because it involves castration in their there minds. Me too. So David Aronovich, who was one of the reviewers, wrote a beautiful review of the book, like really insightful in the Times here. I loved it. When he tweeted it out, he tweeted, testicle haver gets off the fence, which really <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> and he admitted, he, he admitted the most interesting thing in this review. He said that fundamentally, without realising it, he had understood that um, this was about people he honestly thought of as men, I'm sure. He didn't quite say that. But people he had thought of men whose psychological distress was so colossal they were willing to cut off their dick and balls. And a man who's in that sort of level of distress, um. honestly, you know, you can't argue. You just can't. And so that's where he stopped Ooh. thinking, partly because it was so uncomfortable. He literally said his own deep-rooted castration anxiety stopped him from thinking past that to... In a, you know, in a, a sort of a level-headed way, did this actually make this person a woman? What would this mean for women if you said that made them a woman, etc., etc.? And by the way, they're not actually castrating people. So that was a, that's a huge thing, I think. And I'm talking about well-meaning men who are not phobic about anyone here. You know, in their minds, it's linked to castration. Men who Good are willing point. to get castrated really are the people you must be the most sorry for in the universe, literally. Uh-huh. And then... What was the other one I was going to say? Um, yeah, and then I think a lot of people are actually very uncomfortable with gender nonconformity or sex nonconformity, however you want to think of it. Especially they dislike men who break the rules of masculinity. And this includes lots of men who are ashamed of feeling like this. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be that bad person, but the fact is they find a lisping, foppish gay man kind of contemptible and you know, unpleasant and weird, you know, they'll say things like, but why do they have to lisp? You know? And in fairness to the, the butch lesbians, there's a, there's a strong response to why does she have to be standing like that? There's a yeah. real, there's a real... And I think they're a bit different. Yeah. I, so I'm only talking about men here because okay. I think, you know, it's men who commit really all the transphobic acts nearly. Like if that's who is violent towards gender non-conforming okay. people of both sexes. Mm-hmm. But let's just think of this man. Now, if he's a bad person... And he hasn't examined himself in any way and he doesn't stop his bad um, desires. He may actually be a gay basher or he may be somebody who thinks corrective rape of lesbians is a good thing or something like Mm -hmm. that. But I'm talking Mm -hmm. about someone who is a good person and who's ashamed of their baser instincts and ashamed that there is this group that they understand are oppressed. And, you know, to be fair, trans people do suffer a lot of grief, as very, mm-hmm. very effeminate gay men do, or as very, mm-hmm. very butch lesbians do. Mm-hmm. So they're ashamed of feeling like that. So they shy away from the topic. And I think they sort of expect women to kind of deal with it. So there are these men, and they do think of them as men, by the way, because they wouldn't be as sympathetic to them if they thought of them as women. There are these men who, for whatever reason, are kind of a bit contemptible and weird and are doing this thing that no real man would want to do and cast them out of the class of manhood, put them into the women category, let women sort it out. I see a lot of the anger of some of the really noted male men 
trans activists as being anger with women for not picking up the pieces of these men's problems. They do understand they're men. They wouldn't give a toss about them if they didn't. Yeah, that's so that's such a profound thing to think about, because, you know, when we well, I'm I'm not going to say we because, of course, I'm a woman. But like if a man is in that position and he sees this other male person behaving in that way, it raises some serious insecurities about himself because he's like, well, technically I'm just like that guy, but I'm nothing like that guy at the same time. So it's much easier to cast that male to female trans person or that very feminine gay man into some other category. And that is, of course, what um, that is, of course, what some societies have done throughout history. I don't think it's correct to talk about these third gender categories either as if they're all the same. It's an incredibly mm. umbrella term. They, it just, mm. It's just a term for, you know, some societies' understandings of some people as not quite men or women in some very different ways. Mm-hmm. But like these groups like Fafafine or Mouche or Hijra, they are in different ways in different societies, ways of casting men who study yeah. the class of manhood yeah. out of manhood. They don't put them into the class of womanhood. And Fafafine, if I remember correctly, means something like in the manner of a woman, which in a very traditional society where people have quite fixed sex roles is a very good description of what these men are. Where, where are the Fafafina from? What country is that? That's Samoa. Mm. It's interesting because activists talk about these, these third gender categories from all these various cultural and locational contexts as though... There's this happy family of people who have learned to live with trans people as we understand them. But of course, that's not the case. I mean, did, did you do much research about this in your book, about these other third bit. genders? I mean, as you know, so much stuff I researched that didn't end up in the book. But I do talk a fair bit about, Sam, about Samoa and the Fafafine because I talked to the greatest expert outside Samoa, obviously, um, on, on them. And he said very, very firmly, he said, you know, when you call these people trans, you are committing cultural imperialism. You are understanding them in, in a Western framework. And, you know, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me that these groups that would say that, you know, I'm some sort of cultural imperialist for claiming that, you know, this binary notion of sex, which they say <laughs> is a Western colonial, blah, blah, blah. You know, and by the way, can I just say that Stella and I are from the only white country that didn't go around the place colonizing other people. That we're so colonized. Please, just shove <laughs> off, you know. But anyway, even leaving aside that rather minor side point that just Massive drives me completely point. insane. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so they're the ones who are committing the cultural imperialism That's right. and the cultural appropriation. So there's just nothing in common between the sworn virgins of Albania and the Mushe of Oaxaca and the Fafafine of Samoa. They're just put under this third gender category because it's, it's just a useful label for saying there's this thing that people sometimes do when they don't know how to cope in a very traditional society with people who step outside their sex roles. And sometimes they find a special category for them. That's nothing like saying they're actually members of the opposite sex or they have inside them really a woman or whatever. I wonder, will we one day, though, because I do think it's hard to be a girlish boy when you're four and six and eight. And I I wonder, will we have, I don't know, a, a, a more comfortable place for them? 
But we were we'll finding come, a more comfortable place. We were finding, place. but we haven't found. We, we, then we've got, we've we got finding, derailed. We're going backwards now. I know, I know. But I wonder, will we, as a result of all of this mess, might we... I mean, you know, we're forward. screwing things up so hugely and we're breaking so many things that I can picture almost anything the other side of it. I mean, this could go, we could go back to being super homophobic. We could have a massive swing culturally rightwards as a result of all of this. I mean, you know, I've heard people say um, how mad it was that we allowed gay marriage because this was the next thing. Lots of people, not a few people, that lots of culturally right-wing people seriously, seriously think that gay marriage was the moment that the insanity started. And I don't. But, I mean, honestly, if you looked at it from a culturally conservative point of view, you can see why someone would think that. And I'm afraid it goes right back. Or, alternatively, those of us who want a world in which everybody can live the way that they want to, but not trample over other people's rights, somehow we can pick out through the wreckage and we can make something maybe maybe that has fewer blind spots and lacunae in it. I think there's two things that people like you who think thoughtfully about psychology and people's psyches can really help with. And one of them was that somewhere about a decade ago, it seems to me, and maybe it was earlier in the States, we hardened a lot and we became very intolerant of people who didn't agree with our progressive ideas. And I, I, I count myself in this very much. So it's been very good for me doing this topic and learning that a lot of the things I thought five years ago are nonsense and I was stupid and I was, I was, I was arrogant. I was arrogant on Brexit, for example. Seriously, I thought only fools could vote for Brexit. I still think it was a big mistake, but I now have a better understanding of why people did it. So that's one, this massive intolerance. You know, I talked to Simon Fanshawe, who was one of the founders of Stonewall here, and he remembers patient conversations with people who literally thought that A, he was a pervert and B, he was going to burn in hell. And he would have conversations with them because they were um, bishops in the House of Lords or Catholic leaders or Muslim leaders, um, Orthodox Jewish leaders. And all he wanted to do was to find one point of agreement, which was that minority rights matter and their minority rights and his minority rights both mattered. And he didn't spend his time going, you're a bigot, I'm not talking to you because he had to forge a coalition. We need to get back to that. And then the second one, it's related to what you said about there are these things people don't want to think about. I think there's a bunch of things that people don't want to think about that are to do with um, human nature, the fact that there is actually a human nature. We don't want to think about things like um, that children need their mothers or that women care a lot less for um, casual sex than men do, or that there are things you might want to do and think that you choose to do that then cause you great psychological harm. For example, in many cases, prostitution or sex work, that women are psychologically not the same as men. All these things that we thought that we could ignore because in our world they don't fit. They don't fit in a, a society, a capitalist society that's organised the way ours is. By the way, I'm not anti-capitalist. I just mean, you know, the way we've mm -hmm. organised this world. But we can't stop thinking about these things forever because this is where we, it's got us to, this reality-denying place. We almost we were in this place where we thought we're going to make everything fair. We're all going to be very liberal and tolerant. We're going to make everything fair and we'll all be happy because everybody's the same. 
this is the kind of finger wagging kind of diktat mm-hmm. that we were all to follow. And then testosterone and estrogen was going to be ignored because that makes us not the same. And, and children. Children yeah. are baby adults suddenly. Yeah. They don't have their own special needs. It's like developmental psychology is forgotten or child safeguarding is forgotten or the parent-child or mother-child bond. And then you start to think of people as Lego people, that bits can be switched in and out or that you can do things and not have an impact on you, that you can choose to sell yourself without feeling a way about that or that you can have, you know, mindless sex and not have it affect you. And maybe you can. I'm not saying everybody's the same. That's my point, in fact. You know. There's also a kind of techno-optimism that's part of this picture, too, because there's questions about human nature that you're talking about. We can ignore them temporarily when we have technology to kind of push them away. And we forget that actually they will always catch up with us and there's no way to fully escape those human nature issues. But we've had so many, uh, to lack of a better term, pause buttons on things that connect us with human nature that it's easy to see why a lot of people think you can overcome those pesky human problems with more and more technological advancement and also theoretical ideas that take us beyond the human nature. I mean, this whole gender identity theory is very much like you said, I mean, it's a denial of reality, but like who needs reality when you have technology and when you have philosophy and when you have all these kind of superhuman pathways beyond, beyond the nature, beyond the biological truth. Yeah. And, and I mean, more than that, even it's not entirely stupid of us to think like this because we have had so many successes. Right. You know, we transplant things. My children were both by IVF. You know, that's incredible. Mm. No one could have believed that a short while ago. So again, it's like um, it's like this narrative of progress. There has been so much progress in life expectancy, in general health, in wealth. It's hard to say, actually, where the limits are. There are things that you might have said a century ago or 50 years ago that would not be possible, that are, in fact, possible. Like you and like the three of us speaking in three different countries right now live, looking at each other. It's amazing. Yeah. However, it's not the same as if we were in a room. Mm-hmm. And I think if we tried to live like this forever, we'd feel it. I'd love to give you a hug, Sasha. Mm. It would feel so human, you know? Mm. At least I've met Stella. I've never met you. Yeah. So we're... And, you know... We are these strange creatures. Obviously, we're animal. You know, we have hormones like other animals. We have senses. And yet we are also way outsized in the brain department. And it makes us um, very stupid in some ways, as well as ridiculously clever in others. So we do act as if, I think all of us act as if we are a thing in here behind our eyes. And this is just a sort of a machine that's carrying that thing around. And it's why we can believe in things like body swaps. It's why we can write science fiction where, you know, you wake up in another body. The more you think of that, the more insane it is. Because your brain and the brain and all the nerves that the brain is going to, they're what make you who you are. You can't take that out of this body. There isn't a way to do that. And yet it feels like there is. So if that's what you're sort of predisposed to think we are, 
it's very easy to see how you could start to think about, you know, changing bodies, pausing puberty, cutting bits off and, you know, inverting penises. The very first time I wrote about this subject, I wrote a piece that was nothing like as critical as I am now of gender activism. But I tried to state as clearly and simply as I could what was involved in gender surgery, uh, male Mm. to female, as they say. Mm. And I said, um, removing the inner parts of the penis and leaving the nerves and skin and inverting it to create a simulacrum of a vagina. Mm. And I got a very angry letter from a reader saying that it wasn't a simulacrum of a vagina. What was an unpleasant thing? And that wasn't me to say, you know, trans women were women. It was a vagina. And I'm like, I don't know what sex you are, but, you know... You haven't had a good poke around down there, if that's what you think. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is an amazing, amazing organ that can stretch to accommodate a baby's head and then shrink back and that causes pleasure and all sorts of things like that, Mm self-cleaning. And it was just indicative to me, I've remembered that many times since, of a sort of a thought process where we really are some variety of Lego. I know you did a huge amount of research in the book. It's obvious from reading it. It's kind of self-evident. Did you come to any conclusions whether there was any sort of, I know a lot of people talk about the Denton's document and stuff, was there any sort of kind of strategy to kind of um, create this gender explosion or, or, you know, w- was it inadvertent? I watched the first documentary on, on ever on trans. I was telling you about it, Sasha, called A Change of Sex, 1980, George to Julia. A phenomenal. I really recommend this to everybody. I really recommend this series five. And, you know, it's over. It's extraordinary. It's over 20 years. And, and you know, he, he, I'm just segueing into it because it's so interesting. In 1980, um, he transitioned to a woman. And then in 1980, you know, then she became Julia and so said it was all fabulous, said it was all fabulous, kind of the poster woman for trans because she was the first ever documentary. And then in 1994, 14 years later, uh, it emerged that only a matter of months after the transition, there had been a complication in their surgery and actually the vagina had never been used. And she had kept this a secret for 14 years because she wanted other trans people she didn't want to turn off trans people. And so she kept this secret. It just seemed so wrongheaded to keep such an important piece of information secret. And then the researcher or the producer said, and did you become the woman you thought you'd be? And she kind of sadly looks at the camera and goes, no, no. But you, you know, can see why the yeah, shame. Yeah, it was it was a very and then by the end of it, nineteen ninety eight, she's running the bar and she's right up there and she's doing her own thing. But I think you can really see she's left gender behind. She doesn't care whether she's a woman or a man. She's just running a bar and trying to success. That's how I nice. I saw it. Yeah, yeah, it looked like she'd yeah. left it way behind. But anyway, back to my question. Sorry about all that. Do you did you come to any? Because I couldn't believe how similar the language of George Julia. To now, what George was saying, what Julia was saying at back then was the very same to what they're saying now. I, my true self, um, how I identify, all the language was the same in 1980 and I didn't realise that. So I think it, you could answer sort of no and yes to that question. I certainly don't think that there is a shadowy ideology or a group of people pushing this or something. There's a very funny book called The End of the World is Flat that's just come out here in the UK and it's a parody on Stonewall Effect. Yeah. Yeah, by Simon Edge. I do recommend it to people. 
Uh, so of course I do. I've got a blurb on it. I've, I've, I have it. Uh, I have it ordered. It's come into the house. Yeah, it's then. lots of fun. Yeah, but in it, there really is a Mr. Big. There's a billionaire who is a flat earther who is specifically attempting to change okay. the world to, from thinking that there's a round earth to a flat earth. I'm not giving anything away. This is very clear at the beginning, you know. Anyway, um, there's nobody like that for gender ide- ideology, and there isn't even a group of people like that. What it is, is it's something called survivorship bias in the way that people think. We see things that survive and then think that that was kind of inevitable. But actually, there were a thousand things. It's like winning the lottery, basically. You know, there's lots of fringe ideas. There's lots of, you know, right now, there are thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of small, determined campaign groups, you know, specific anti-vaxxers, Seventh-day Adventists, Scientologists, and they're all the big ones that I know the name of. But there's really small ones as well that have a really, really counter-cultural idea of the way things work. And just every now and then, for whatever reason, one becomes big. There's a lovely example of this in Terry Pratchett's books. I adore Terry Pratchett and I miss him terribly. One of the books is called Small Gods. And his idea of what gods are is that there's just like little gods popping up all the time and they're little tiny accretions of belief. And just occasionally, by luck, one of these tiny gods goes big. You know, it's lucky that a shepherd finds a lost sheep right next to it and it sort of makes a little cairn of stones and that belief makes the god grow. And of all these millions or countless trillions of gods, every now and then a god becomes big. So I think it's a bit like that. The reason that the language in all of these people feels the same, it's partly because they will have been talking to each other a bit. There were these groups in the UK and the US that were talking to each other. And, but also because it's not that hard to see what you would want if, in particular, you're a male person who wishes ardently to be female. And I know that sounds like it should be symmetric and I should be saying, or a female person who wants to be male. But I'm going to detour about that in a second, just finish this thought. So if you're a male person who wants to be female, the fact is it can't be, you aren't and you won't be, it's just not possible. And you're unlikely to be able to do a decent simulacrum of it as well, because testosterone is what it is and it's done what it's done to your body. So you're going to have to remake the world. That's the only alternative. If you can't accommodate yourself to the world, the world has to accommodate itself to you. And that requires certain things. You know, it requires that your subjective experience of yourself becomes reality, that other people have to conform themselves to it. Um, The feeling that you have, you will describe it as a true self and so on. So it's not surprising that they describe it in the same way in these different instances So we're just watching a small god become a big god, basically. And I do want to come back to that question of why it's not symmetric about the male and female and female and male. In this context, there are many ways in which it's not symmetric. Basically, what you are doing in our society, if you're a male who wants to identify as female, in one sense, you're identifying out of privilege. I don't find a lot of the discourse about privilege very helpful. I just mean that historically men have been dominant. So what you're doing in terms of power is you're giving up something. And that's generally allowed. So that's why nearly all the third genders are males who wish to be taken as something other than men. You're allowed to give up your privilege and go and do things that women do because you're downgrading yourself. 
if women were allowed to identify to be men, we'd all bloody do it. And then you could inherit the farm. You could be the one who gets to boss people around. You wouldn't be married off. You couldn't be beaten. You'd be the one who get to be you know, looking I, after the kids, etc., etc. Uh, it's fascinating that they did the, the, the so that the earls and the the dukes couldn't. That was the only. Tell us about that. Just after. Yeah. So the Gender Recognition Act of two thousand and four. Um, it's it's not a well written piece of legislation, but it did try to state the situations in which it, you were changing your your legal sex, and it makes a specific exemption for um, inheritance and landed titles and the aristocracy. So if you're a girl who is who would, if you had been a boy, inherited the title, you know, in other words, it's primogeniture. So it says, you know, that um, if, if you change your legal sex from female to male, that does not change your position in any inheritance situation. God damn it. There goes my whole life plan. <laughs> so, it, I mean, the only example I looked at of a third gender that was female to male in traditional societies, it really, it really illustrates the point. So what the Fafafine do in Samoa is they can wear skirts, they can put flowers in their hair, they, um, they go into dancing, they move and dress as women, and they take male partners and those men don't think of themselves as gay. And it's allowed which, you know, homosexual relationships between men who identify as men are not allowed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what the um, Albanian sworn virgins are is they're women who are allowed to take the status of male for the purposes of inheritance or to get out of an arranged marriage. So these are highly patriarchal societies where inheritance goes to sons only. So sometimes a family that has no sons will nominate one of their daughters to be the son so they can keep the farm or the land. And also it's a society where marriages are arranged very, very young. So if a woman grows up and it is simply inconceivably terrible to her that she would marry this man, she can't turn him down because that would start a blood feud and her brothers and his brothers would start killing each other and the whole families would be be totally slaughtered. But she can identify as a man and that allows the man to, without losing face, break the engagement. So what, what this rare example does is it shows you that when women are identifying in traditional societies as men, they're doing so in a way that it's, it's, it's not because they think they're men in some sense. It's to get out of some strictures on women. And mostly women aren't allowed to get out of strictures on them. It's only in special circumstances they are. Whereas the men are accepting giving up privilege. A Samoan man who becomes a Fafafine is giving up male privilege. But he's doing it because then he can express himself in ways he finds comfortable and also he can have gay sex. So much to think about, isn't it? I never think about, I never see sex so clearly as when I look at people who deny sex entirely. You know, when you look at trans women hectoring women and demanding entrance and saying, what do you mean I have to ask? This is mine by right. You know, they never look more male. I know, I know. Yeah, I so I, I mean, I, I, you know, and, and if I look at a sworn virgin of Albania, I, I, I should say this has really pretty much died out, this custom. This is an older yeah, custom. Yeah. Um, when I look at these stories, it's like you see women in the patriarchy drawn more clearly than when mm-hmm. you look at other women. Mm. And when you see what a fafafine is opting out of in Samoa, you see what it means to be a man in that society, you know? Yeah. It's just endlessly fascinating to me. Was there anything that you really wish 
could have got into the book, although I find it completely comprehensive, or would have got into the book or you wish it stuck yeah. in? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had this quite quite um, structured approach, which was, as I say, very much helped by my editor. Um, so it was really women, children and gay people. And she said, structure it as, you know, the history and theory, what this does to children, what this does to women and what this does to society. I didn't need to pull out the gay people because that kind of got woven in, you know, some of them are children, some of them are women, that sort of thing. And what would not have fitted in that in, in that structure is um, spending a lot of time talking about what I think are the ROGD boys. So I did talk a lot about autogynophilia and about um, you know homosexual males who identify as women. And I set that up at the, the front. And those are the two categories of males that I discuss. And then the two categories of females I discuss are the sort of butch lesbian women who have always really suffered whatever it means, gender dysphoria. Lots of them always have. It's been very uncomfortable for a lot of lesbian women, much more uncomfortable for it than for straight women, you know. Um, and then there's this new group, the ROGD girls. But what, what I didn't appreciate really until I'd finished the book is the extent to which there's a new group of trans-identifying teenage boys. And I think both of you have done a lot of work on that. In, in your defence, they've shot in like a rocket in the last yeah. year or so. So yeah. that I'd say by the time you were literally finishing the book, those yeah. numbers mm. were starting to escalate at a very fast pace. That's but I feel yeah. that, you know, they are in the place that the detransitioned girls were a few years ago of feeling completely voiceless and feeling that even people who should care about them seem not to. Yeah. You know, I feel I feel I've left them. To, I've let them down in a way. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know how I would have fitted it into the book. But, you yeah. know, you asked and I'm answering. That's a thing that I think uh, is a real shortcoming of the book. This group that I did not examine and didn't name. I tell you what I'm really glad you did examine, which I didn't know as much about was the Canada prison system. <sighs> It was an ex- it was like I was I was actually tense reading it. It's an extraordinary know, part of the book. I know. That, I, there I, were bits you know, I couldn't sleep. Yeah. It's just an extraordinary expose on a mess of a judicial. But you system. know it's worse in the States now. Yeah. I mean when you're a journalist you have to pick um so there's the, another thing I would say about the book is it makes no pretense of being complete and completist. There were entire things that I left out. Um, in particular, it's not a history of what happened in the past 30 or even 100 years. Oh, there need to be lots of them written. There's loads more books needed. Mm. But so, for example, um, you know, there's a whole parallel uh, story to be told about schools in the UK. But I chose to tell the story about the schools in the US. And I can't, in a book of this length that's intended for a general audience, I can't do both. So I left out a whole load of what's going on here in the UK and then here in the UK, I did the women's employment and um, free speech stuff, like very much taking Maya Forstatter's case as my thread through that. But, you know, there's a whole load going on in the US that I left out as a result. So Canada, I looked at the prisons, but actually there's worse going on in the States. It's just that actually it's really hard to get any information about it. But there are at least 300 males, most of them very serious offenders, sexual offenders and murderers who have either asked for or got transferred to women's jails just in California. So one of the stories that one of the um, women I talked to in the States told me, and it didn't make it into the book, it was when she realised that um, the traditional, big, um, established women's groups had really gone over to the dark side, was when she saw that they were campaigning to get a particular trans woman allowed into a women's prison. And this trans woman had started, as many trans women do, as a cross-dresser. He was a heterosexual man and he was married to a woman. 
and she had come home and found him wearing her clothes. And this is a moment of great shame and um, horror for a man like this Mm. who has Mm -hmm. a secret life. Mm -hmm. So he killed her. He strangled her with a piano wire so viciously that he almost decapitated her. And then he fled in the car. And when he was found uh, by the police, uh, he said that he had had a you know, red mist and he remembered none of it and so on. But anyway, he was convicted of her murder. So um, they were campaigning for this beautiful trans woman to be moved to a women's jail. He had tried to de- decapitate his wife. You just think, you call yourself feminists and you're trying to put the most brutal murderers and rapists of women into women's jails. I still can't get over that, Sasha. And you change the whole prison system. If it's a women's prison, it's all emphasis on therapeutic program, um, building self-development, bring, building kind of self-assertion in the women. You bring in trans women who have a completely different de- kind of demographic and completely different crimes. And so it, it doesn't So You make that point in the book. It doesn't suit. Um, yes, it's back to the, it's back to the denial the of human nature. Yeah. Women are not just small, chubby men who somehow manage to grow human beings inside them every now and then. We're actually different. We're different at every cell. And that has consequences right through everything. I, 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 just, I just sometimes wonder about some feminists as well, people who I think are really on the right side in terms of their activism, people I hugely admire. And then I hear them say that, you know, male violence is um, socialised. Mm-hmm. Like there has literally never been a society in which men have not committed nearly mm-hmm. all the violence, most of it against each other, by the way, yeah, and nearly all the sexual violence. It's men who are paedophiles, really very rarely women, etc., etc., etc. We're not perfect. I'm not saying we are, but they are not our crimes. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask you about because it is it is kind of astonishing to think that so much of feminism for the last several decades was about trying to imply that all the differences we see are socialized. And then, like you said earlier, with the examples of these third gender individuals in different cultures, when we deny sex, it almost demonstrates perfectly for us how different men and women can be. Exactly, exactly. And it's a backhanded insult to women as well. Yeah. Like if you say, if you even imply, like there certainly are people who disagree with me on the grounds that they think that I'm some sort of social conservative. And they think that simply by saying women are not the same as men, I'm saying that women are inferior to men. But I don't think the difference implies being inferior. And I think that saying that shows a huge, innate, unexamined sexism on their part. Yes, it's a preferential viewing of what the male is, just inherently. I, I agree completely. I think that ideas from psychology are going to be so important to us to find ways out of this. And in those, I'm a neophyte. You know, I'm a... I'm, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I'm, you know, governed by my emotions and whatever. But in terms of what I do when I'm writing, I'm very logical. That's the only way I know how to be. But it's not logic that's going to get us out of this. That's just my contribution. It's all I can do is to try to say in book form what happens when you start from this illogical premise and you work forward, which is what we've done in the past 20 years. But it's thinking about things like it's what I appreciated so much about your discussion about non-binary. Like someone like me, just says, oh, non-binary is stupid. Everybody's male or female. It's not natural to me, and I'm not trained to examine, what does that mean to somebody? What are they trying to tell me? 
I thought I really I really recommended that podcast to people because I think a lot of people have kids coming home to them and saying, you know, I'm I'm non-binary, I'm they them, and how the parents respond is going to be very important to whether that child continues on a journey like goes through that to full identification with the opposite sex. Or finds it, like you, I think you said, Stella, like a resting place, a place that they could pause and just say, I'm out, this isn't me. But those are the sorts of ideas, you know, from people who are more subtle and better at reading people than I am that we need. You know, what are you denying about yourself here? What are you trying to communicate here? What does this mean to you? What are you trying to express? Can we surface that and help you to do it in a playful way? That sort of thing. Mm. Well, based on based on what you've learned, based on all your research, do you have any predictions of where this is headed? Do we do we have any reasons to be hopeful? Do we have reasons to run and hide in a bunker? <laughs> where where do we about, go here? I'm very worried about the US in particular because mm. you're a country that has a stellar track record of painting yourself into corners. So what I mean by that is that there are policy choices that America makes and has made that it then doubles down on and trebles down on and gets to a point that it's not possible to reverse them. So at this point, you couldn't very easily or indeed at all possibly bring in gun control because there's just too many guns. The fact is you've now got to try to live with a situation where every criminal has many guns and easy access to guns. No other developed country has got itself into that place. Every other developed country brought in gun control before you got to that point. And it's the same with healthcare. No other developed country allowed healthcare to eat up anything remotely like the same amount of GDP before it made sure everybody had it. And now you've got these enormously expensive um, medical costs and you've got these huge lobbyists, so you're not going to be able to get a good solution. I just don't think it's available to you. I'm a bit afraid that you're going to get to a point where you've put gender, gender self-identification into federal law, or at least into lots of states' laws, and it's become the way things are. The fact is that women just can't have privacy in public. They, there are no women-only spaces. Men really can perform you know, voyeurism and flashing at will in any space they like. That's a woman's space and so on. And then it's very hard to see how you'd get back out of that, because it's very hard to take away rights. And I say rights in inverted commas because it's not a right, but anyway, it's been given as a right. I'm much more hopeful here in the UK because we haven't passed any really shitty law. But I mean, there's a huge amount of work, huge, just to get back to where women were in, say, 1990. And uh, and then, from, so the hope, I think, though, is that a really brilliant movement has been forged and lots of women who aren't academic feminists and aren't right up their own arses like so many academic feminists are, are starting to think about, you know, what does it mean to be a woman? What are the things that women care about? What does it mean to look after elderly people? All of those sorts of real life things that academic feminists used to care about and have abandoned. So that's my hope. But my despair is that when you pass really terrible laws, it's extremely hard to turn them back. Um, we're coming up towards the end and I, I can't underline how much I really loved your book. I really can't. Fabulous. I was a tiny bit devastated it wasn't referenced. Do you want to give it to me? I know Jesse Single brought it up in his New York Times. Yeah, yeah. that was a lovely review in the New York yeah. Times. I mean, I hugely admire Jesse, and it was the first review um, that said more than tiny negative things that I thought, yep, I put my hand up to that. 
so he said that a book like this really should have had uh, much fuller references. And, you know, now with hindsight, I think he's probably right. I can tell you why I didn't, and the reasons don't really seem to me to be completely adequate now. But you must remember, I thought that I was going to end up self-publishing this book. <laughs> and I, when I read it and I was reviewing it, I was so just unbearably ecstatic that it was out. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but, but anyway, you yeah. know, the book is out and it's yeah. been a great success and anyone who wants can yeah. criticise it. And, you know, I, I will accept those criticisms yeah. if they are meant in good faith and they aren't just lying about what I say or some bullshit like that. So the two reasons I didn't, one is the style of writing and journalism that I've done for the last 17 years or 16 years is at The Economist. And we don't reference things. We actually fact check the entire article in an incredibly rigorous process. I think only The New Yorker does anything remotely similar. That like We have an entire research department and they don't let the piece go in oh, until I every see. fact is checked. Of course, mistakes still do get through because nobody's perfect. But you're but like working every name, in that every date, Yeah. So, I mean, I did fact check my own book. Inevitably, a few mistakes did get through. So far, only really tiny ones uh, that I've discovered. So, so that's the style of writing I've done. And only belatedly have I understood that the reason The Economist gets away with that is because it's The Economist. People say it was in The Economist. Yeah. I can't expect people to say, oh, Helen Joyce said it. Why would they? You know, I'm a first time author. I, you know, this is the first, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not sort of like, you know, the world authority on this topic or something. And the second reason was just a much more pragmatic one, which was that it was intended as a trade book for a general audience. And it's quite intimidating to have a lot of references. So what I did was I put a further reading in it. And each chapter, I thought, if someone wants to know more about this, what are the best sources I can go to? So rather than saying, for example, with Ray Blanchard, whom I quote quite a lot, both from an interview and from his work, oh, this came from this paper, that came from that paper, I asked him if someone was going to read just one of your papers, what's the overview paper? I did the same with Paul Vasey. I referenced things like Mike Bailey's book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, or Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger. I do truly feel that um, or the other thing that we do at The Economist is we try to give enough detail in each sentence that you can go and find whatever it was. But I can see how someone would look and say, you know, either, no, I don't feel this is trustworthy because she hasn't given enough references. Fair enough. You know, you might think The Economist can get away with that and I can't. I see your point. Or else they want to go and find out loads more and do they necessarily feel I've given them what they wanted for that? So, Stella, you're not my target audience, you have yeah. to understand. Yeah. I wasn't writing for you, although I'm delighted you've read it yeah. and I'm delighted you reviewed it. I was writing this book and the reason I and called right. it Trans was for... the middle for, ground. Do you know what it was? It was really a very specific reader. It was for somebody who has been thinking for maybe the past two or three years, what's going on here? They just keep seeing things out of the corner of their eyes. What? There's a bloke in the Women's Olympics? That's weird. Why do the kids keep coming home and saying people are non-binary? That's weird. And then they see a book that says trans and they go, ah, I might find out why here. And that person doesn't want 90 million uh, references. Yes. yes. So there you go. That's my explanation. I do really understand why somebody might feel that I should have done it differently. Well, Helen, I cannot wait to dig into your book. <laughs> and w would you be willing to come back on and chat with us more once I've highlighted, annotated, bookmarked? <laughs> Sasha, I would talk to you and Stella for hours. I cannot come off on often enough. I love this podcast. Ooh. I love you both. 
<laughs> Still is throwing my book around. Oh, yeah, I, know. I was just going to show you. Look at all the little turn downs. Can you see? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> it's like, and Henry said to my husband, said, what the hell have you done to this book? And I was like, oh, there's loads of things I have to look back. <laughs> it's like oh, every Sasha, page is wait. carefully turned down. I can't wait till we can travel again. I know. Oh, I know. I know. Oh. It would be so nice to give you that, that real three-dimensional hug that you talked about. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and to hand you a signed copy. That's what I yes, want to do too. I would love that. Well, well thank Helen, you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we're honoured. I've loved it. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit Rethink ime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 